load the plates and lift the weights And we are mates and weights are great And as of late we pontificate about the weights And make a podcast! Sumo is cheating This is Weekly Weights with Alex and Will uh, I will need to drop a deuce at some point. So. <laughs> Just uh, this is the best bit. I hit record two seconds before Alex I'm, said that. I'm okay with that. I, uh, I I do I do recall um, it for for DMT. So I, I had this I had this course in college or sorry in uni, um, and uh, it was it was on drugs and human behavior, and the professor wrote the textbook. He he comes in first day and he's like so. You guys want to know how I wrote this textbook? He's like, pick any drug in there. I've got at least at least three experiences on every single one. So so he was talking about about his like time using DMT on like day one of that course. That's um, yeah. It was it was like the whole course was absolutely hilarious. And this guy was like, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised to see if he was just like on multiple drugs while he was taking it because he was just nutty, like so, the weirdest guy. But it, but so funny. Complete aside, it's such a rort when professors make you buy their textbook for their courses. Like, I know, it's right? such bullshit. But also, something I've noticed with people who are, and I'm talking also academics who speak about psychedelics, is like, you can't kind of be into them without doing them, if you know what I mean. Like, I think a lot of their academic curiosity comes because they have these profound experiences using them. And, like, again, to the people who, who, which is everybody outside of us who weren't hearing the conversation before this, we were talking about Joe Rogan. Um, something that you hear from all these people who talk about doing DMT and stuff is like really profound, almost like pseudo religious experiences. I think that's the type of thing that probably changes the way you approach your life. And as an anecdote, when I was in, I went traveling for a few months after uni and I went to Nicaragua and I stayed at this hostel that was a chocolate factory on an island in a lake in Nicaragua. And it was well, a vegan different. chocolate factory hostel. Oh, you, right? you lost me at vegan. Yeah. Honestly, man, the food was dope, but I used to walk up the road like a hundred meters and eat a half chicken at lunchtime and the owner hated me for it. Um, but anyway, savage, savage. <laughs> you got to, um, but the owner, um, I was talking to him one night and he was a pretty spacey guy. And he, um, and I said to him, like, why did you start this hostel? Because it is literally chocolate factory on an island on a lake, Nicaragua. He was American. Like, it was just a bit bizarre. And the reason was DMT. He was like, I had this trip. And he described this experience that I thought was such bullshit until I heard everybody on Joe Rogan basically saying the same thing, where he felt like he was catapulted, like his soul was catapulted out of his body. And he described himself in vivid detail. I've told this story on the podcast before. Passing, like, Earth's atmosphere you know, the debris, ISS, asteroid belt, planets, Milky Way, everything till the edge of the known universe. And then he said he met these astral beings and they explained to him and showed him the connections between like the energy flowing between everything and the earth and shot him back into his body. And he was looking around himself and could see energy flowing from like plant to animal and shit like that. And that he basically thought the past was the future and the future was the present and that everything we think is a lie, but he also realized that life is sacred and therefore he had to become vegan and start a chocolate factory hostel. And I was like, I, somewhere in there, you lost me, <laughs> but, but that's just, that's the type of thing that happens. Like you take DMT and next minute you're a chocolate factory vegan entrepreneur. Yeah. Jeez. Um, <laughs> speaking of entrepreneurs, um, question mark vegan, 
We are joined by Joe Stanick today. I started recording just because we were having fun discussions off air. Um, Joe is a coach at the Strength Athlete. Um, and his Instagram posts recently have been absolute fire. I have to say, Joe's been making a really big effort to share some of his knowledge. And so we wanted to get him on and pick his brain in more detail than the 400 odd characters you get on Instagram. Um, but Joe, I'd love you to give us a bit more of a resume about you, the person, you, the coach, and, and some of your athletes' achievements, because it's very impressive. Well, thank you. Uh, I appreciate you guys having me on. This is, is really cool because obviously I've you know gotten to actually talk to you guys in person because uh, I lived in Sydney for a while um, when I was studying abroad. So it's kind of cool to catch up with you guys. But uh, yeah, about me, um, like you said, I'm powerlifting coach for the strength athlete. Uh, I have been uh, doing that in, in some way or another. It'll be, it'll be seven years uh, this coming October, which is crazy to think about. Um, uh, prior to being a full-time coach with them, I, I did intern as well. Um, studied, uh, exercise science at my, uh, or for my degree in university. Um, been powerlifting since I was about 13. Uh, I'm 25 now, so that's a pretty long time. And I have a, a massively underwhelming total despite that effort. Um, <laughs> I've been, uh, I've been lucky enough to work with some of the best athletes in the world. Um, I've, uh, as of 2019, I trained my first IPF world champion, which was kind of cool. Um, I've had multiple athletes that have, have, you know, at, at one point or another set some kind of, of, uh, record. Um, mo most notably, I would say I've trained, uh, two athletes that have set unofficial deadlift world records in the 83 kilo class. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to get them to worlds, but you know, maybe someday, um, Last year, I don't know if this really counts for anything, but last year I had an athlete in every single primetime session at U.S. Raw Nationals, which was very, very cool. Um, and despite all that, uh, I, you know, I've worked with every kind of athlete that you can think of from ranked beginners all the way up to those, those kinds of lifters. Um, so besides that, I'm also, uh, also a fitness entrepreneur, uh, starting, uh, starting a supplement brand at the moment with, uh, with some friends. So that's kind of cool. And uh, got another project going on in uh, in Austin that uh, I think is at this point is public, uh, which is a uh, a gym venture game day barbell. That's sick. If it wasn't public, then you heard it here first. Um, game day barbell. Can you give us a um, give us some more details on your supplement brand as well? I reckon that'd be cool. Sure. So it's it's uh, it's actually going to be sort of parallel with the the gym brand. It's called Game Day Nutrition. Um, we're launching uh, three products. Uh, the first one is coming up soon. It's it's a uh, very simple pre workout. We're actually calling it uh, a powdered energy drink rather than a pre workout. Uh, it's called Duet. Uh, it's uh, just caffeine and uh, L-theanine, which will kind of cut the jitters from caffeine. Uh, we're trying to do some unique flavors with that. So we've got uh, over here in America, we have uh, the uh, lychee rain is very popular. I'm, uh, I'm sure you guys probably don't have it because you know you're not cool enough yet. Um, the uh, yeah, I know it sucks. We still, Honestly, even, we still don't even have Grape Monster, which is a travesty because every time I go to the states, it's the best. We have Grape. This Grape Monster. Oh, there you go. It's the best there, there's there's so many there's so many flavors of monster over here dude it's it's ridiculous like i remember i remember going over to sydney and, and looking for like the orange monster and at the time actually I, do you guys have that now we have the, the orange we have the orange one yes yeah it's very okay. new yeah at the time at the time like we'd had it in the states for like two years and i'm looking for one and there's just it's just not there i like the only thing you guys had was the white one which is still good but um, anyway, uh, the second, second product that's coming out is, uh, 
a uh, rehydration product made specifically for powerlifting. Um, I think it's a little bit funny that like Gatorade and Pedialyte are kind of the norms for rehydrating. So we're addressing that. Uh, and then the last thing, which uh, is probably a ways away at this point, we are coming out with uh, energy candy. It's called Sour Surge, and it's essentially going to be sour candy with caffeine in it. That's actually pretty mad. That's a good idea. Question. How does the the rehydration product differ to a Powerade or Gatorade or Pedialyte? Um, it's, so it's, it's a, I don't know if you're familiar with Trioral, um, which is kind of, uh, one of the, it's, it's a product over here in the States that has, uh, essentially closer to what the, the maximum amount of, of electrolytes that your body can uptake within say like an hour, um, in one packet. So my thought with that was, um, or excuse me, my thought with that was, well, this tastes like ass. So let's, let's make a good tasting version of this that has a few extra little things that can help you with rehydration. Um, some, people now, like, some people like eating ass though, Joe. That is true. You're right. You're right. Um, <laughs> I mean, people, people pull sumo. So <laughs> exactly. Um, degenerates out there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm one of those people. So um, anyway, uh, yeah. So the way, the way that it works besides, besides just having, uh, the, having the, the maximum amount of levels that you can uptake in uh, sodium, potassium, magnesium, um, a little bit of calcium, because that's, that's important as well. Cause you, you'll typically pee out calcium if you're, if you're peeing a lot. Um, it's got a couple other things in it. One, it has a very, very small amount of caffeine. And the idea behind that is that it crosses the blood brain barrier very quickly. Um, and obviously the main function of caffeine is to, you know, block those receptors that make you feel tired. And usually it's early in the morning when you're weighing in and, you know, if you're, if you're dehydrating yourself, you usually feel kind of exhausted. So the idea by including a little bit of that uh, is just to make you feel almost instantly better. Uh, and then there is a tiny little bit of creatine in there. Uh, and the only reason that that's included is for those that might be using some kind of uh, heat, that like, you know, jog- jogging in a bunch of clothing or sauna or something like that. Uh, because there's, there's uh, at least a little bit of research out there showing that you'll actually sweat out uh, more of the byproducts of creatine uh, when you're using uh, heat-based, you know, uh, uh, dehydration methods. So that's kind of the idea with including that is maybe you can replenish a little bit of that and, and hopefully perform a little bit better on the day. Uh, and other than that, the only real major difference between other stuff is that it just tastes good. Um, we, we've got two flavors that we're working on right now that I'm, I'm really excited about. Um, it's just a matter of uh, being able to produce them. Cool. Um, I was going to, I was going to add something. I think the, like a lot of people, when you say you're going to put caffeine in a supplement, the first thing I think is like caffeine has diuretic effects. Right. I'm not, I know there is the evidence that that caffeine consumption in coffee doesn't cause dehydration because like the fluid that you're consuming in the process negates it. And I presume that with a low dose of caffeine in a product, that's going to be in solution in water, you'd probably have no dramas at all. So to anybody who was thinking that, you know, that would be my immediate response. The second question though is, why no DMAA in the pre-workout? <laughs> um, well, uh, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to get people uh, coming after you saying, "Hey, this, uh, this might not, this might not go along a, go along with water terms, right?" Yeah, well, that is a big shame. Water schmarter. Yeah, water schmarter. <laughs> Anybody who remembers the original Jack 3D back in the glory days of training, oh, that's when the gym man. was actually fun. Now it sucks. But- <laughs> I used to take that before a cross-country race. That was a mistake. I, I remember once I had Jack 3D before training and then I went straight to basketball training and I had another scoop before basketball training and I was like so fucking headachy and oh, it was terrible. Yeah, my, I have taken, I've taken pre-workout before and night out before 
Like oh. if you pre-drink with it, oh my God, it was a really bad idea. This is back in my more irresponsible days. <laughs> it was so bad. Joe, I want to I wanna get on topic um, because I'm aware of your time. Something that comes across when, when you read or like read the things you've written or listen to you, you've been on a few other podcasts now, is like this mixture of, of like theory um, and real pragmatism. And in being sort of a very person-centered coach, you, you come across as somebody who sort of thinks, I've got this body of knowledge, but ultimately I'm working with the person in front of me. And so one of the big things we want to cover with you is like how you communicate with clients and how you foster that really productive environment that does facilitate people getting better. So the first question is like, you know, when you get a new client, what's the process like starting with you? And how do you start creating that sense of, of like a coach-athlete relationship and buy-in from them? Sure. Um so I think one of the, the first major points that like a lot of people, they don't really consider when they're, when they're working with a new client, especially, um, is that you, you almost kind of have to, you have to create trust in them. Um, and I, I know that does kind of sound fairly obvious on the surface, but I, I don't think that, um, that goes far enough with a lot of new athletes. So when people are, are coming to you for coaching, they immediately assume you're going to have all of the answers. And I think that, one of the one of the problems with that in, in terms of creating trust is that a lot of coaches, you know, they, they try to fill that mold, right? They, they try to come in and say like, oh yeah, this is exactly what you need to do here. This, this, and, and then that's, that's sort of a rigid thing. But the way that, the way that I approach it and the way that I'm, I'm looking to create that rapport with my clients is always, you know, almost kind of, kind of flipping the script and saying, hey, what do you think you need to change? What do you need to work on um you know why why are you seeking coaching what what do i need to do to make you better and that sort of a conversation always opens up um opens up a a different line of thinking for the athlete because it, it gets them critically thinking about what they need to change um, and i think that by being able to do that having those sort of back and forth like let's say an athlete you know for example like let's say they're struggling with the squat and they feel like um you know, they, they are just folding over a lot, right? Um, so by saying that, that kind of, rather than me pointing that out, like let's say, you know, we were looking at a video, um, it gets them thinking a little bit more about uh, collaborative work, like we're working together in a sense of, of like, we're not just, um, like I'm not just there giving them all the answers, right? And I think that that sort of a, a bond is always what I'm looking for an athlete that, that we can put our heads together to try to solve problems rather than just, you know, I'm telling you everything at the end of the day, I'm, you know, I, I still like that because that's what a coach you know should do on a, on a lot of the cases, but I, I like, um, you know, involving the athlete in that way. And I think that's what helps, you know, create that trust and, and puts, puts the athlete in a position where, um, the, the relationship is a little bit more symbiotic rather than me just kind of taking everything from them like a parasite. Yeah, and I think if you, if they come to you with what they perceive a problem to be and then you come up with a solution for it, it's almost like they're going to be more likely to believe that it's going to work. Whereas if you were the one who came and said, hey, you know, you need to do this to fix this, they might not quite have that link there yet. Yeah, I think, I think that's important. Um, just because at the end of the day, I think a, a smarter athlete and a more... Um, you know, a more well-versed athlete is just always going to be a better athlete. It, it encourages them to continue to be a student in the game. Um, and I think you're just going to be able to put better approaches together that way. Um, I also think it, it, that same side of the coin helps them like generate excitement about their own approach. Um, 
at the end of the day, like I could write, you know, the most like optimal program on paper easily for, for any client. But I, I think if, if somebody's not super excited about there and they're not like invested in uh, the way that their programming is done, I think it's just, it's just always going to be less exciting. And, you know, there's a chance that when things get hard, they're, they're not going to want to put that effort in. Um, so I, I think that that helps kind of create that side of things to the program because they just feel so personally vested in it because we're bouncing ideas off of each other constantly. Um, and that, that helps create that sort of buy-in because they're so involved in what we're doing rather than me just saying everything. Yeah. And I think like from a very selfish coaching perspective as well, if you always identify the problems and always engineer the solutions independently for your athlete. You create athletes that are very highly dependent on you. And so oftentimes they're going to be coming to you with problems that they might've actually been able to solve themselves. If you'd helped develop that skill set. you almost like create more work for yourself in the future. And very often some of the almost like problems that emerge don't have like a set in stone solution. Like there's multiple, there's multiple approaches that you can take. And so what you end up finding as a coach is like your, your play this heaps really high with problems where the answer might be, it doesn't matter provided that we pick something. Whereas if you have an athlete who can self-identify problems and can come to you with a couple of solutions that they would be excited to try or that are going to be workable, you've already like refined, you've already refined your number of choices by a large number. And then you can say, you can then like basically put your expertise to work on those limited choices and say, okay, here's I think the best approach for us. And it's suddenly like less work for you, more buy-in for the athlete and and chronically less work. Like over time, they become more and more and more independent rather than relying on you more and more and more and more as their training career gets longer and possibly more complicated, you know? Yeah, I think I think that's, that's interesting too because there just kind of seems to be this culture out there where, um, and, you know, as a coach, it's, it's kind of almost like we, at least for a good coach, you almost have to kind of put the athlete in a position where they, they may not need you someday. Uh, if you're doing your job correctly. Um, and, uh, I mean, I have seen plenty of coaches that, that their athletes sort of over rely on them. And I, I don't know, I often find that, that they don't improve as well as, as the athletes that are, uh, you know, working with an athlete centered focused coach. And that's, that's kind of the term that I, I like to use uh, is where we should always be working towards an athlete centered approach rather than, rather than focusing on, on too many details that may not necessarily matter in the long run. Um, I, I, I don't know. I just, I think that, that that's something that's super underrated in coaching. And honestly, even if it like killed my business, if, if I'm, you know, seeing my athletes go on to be super successful and be able to make their own decisions over the course of their entire training career, like I've done my job. Sure. Sure. I might, you know, I might have to get a new job, but Hey, I've done, I've done, I've done the right thing. To be fair. Um, I mean, you coach more and higher level athletes than me but I coach a few pretty good athletes. Nobody has ever left me and said, I don't need your help anymore <laughs> unless they were actually kind of pretty bad and didn't know, didn't know it. You know what I mean? Like nobody who's actually been good has said, I don't need your help, but people do stay who could probably do without me because they still feel that sense of support. And they feel like there's, there's somebody who's on the journey with them who can help them make decisions and sort of see them through the harder times and help them capitalize on the good times and things. Well, yeah, I think I think um, Eric Helms puts it well when he talks about you know you become an ally rather than like a dictator. Mm. I think that's really important to create that kind of relationship where you're almost on the same level. Right. Yeah, I think. I mean, I I I don't think it's a, a secret that I like. Obviously, I work for the strength athlete um, 
So I, I have a lot of influence from from them uh, and from 3D MJ. I've been I've been uh, coached by Helms for for bodybuilding and powerlifting before. I've worked with Nunez for nutrition. Um, so I, I you know I do draw a lot on a lot of their philosophies, um, and I, I think that for for you to to come in an athlete as somebody who is just solely reliant on you, I, I just I know I already hit on that before, but it, it's just something that I, I, I don't think you're, you're doing your job well if you're kind of holding everything close to your chest when it comes to problem solving and, and the way that uh, you're working with the athlete. You know, if, if they if they kind of, uh, if they're always asking you for, like I'll, I'll use an example, that this is my favorite one, um, where I see uh, coaches saying like, oh, well this, uh, this RP or this set wasn't this RP, it was actually this RP. And you you should have gone up, or you should have you shouldn't have gone that high. Um, I, I think like little things like that, where you're you're working with an athlete and you're essentially not allowing them to think for themselves, is, is just a, a big mistake. And it's always better to kind of help them along rather than you know hold their hand all the way. Yeah, and I think um, I think sort of like an underpinning to all the things you've been saying is is that guruism kind of works until it doesn't. Like in the short term, if I pretended that I had all the answers for my clients, I might get some immediate buy-in from people who are looking for dependency. But then sooner or later, I'm not going to have the answer to a question, you know, and we are going to have to work collaboratively. And then suddenly the appeal of working with me is gone because they're like, holy shit, like it was all smoke and mirrors from the get-go. Whereas if from the get-go you say, hey, I want to work with you and recognize your strengths and your knowledge and like and develop you and we're, you know, we're in this together – then when it comes to a point where you're like, I'm not really sure what the best solution here is, you actually have the avenue of being open without sacrificing the image that you've created in their mind, you know? Yeah. And I, I think, I also think on that same, same coin, you also have to, uh, you, you need to be able to look at the athletes sort of like learning style and, and adapt to that as well. Because I do have some athletes um, I, I was actually just sitting with a, a girl yesterday who like, she tell, told me like, I, I don't want to know about how any of this works. I don't want to know like why you're making the decisions that you're, you're making. I just want you to make them for me. And um, immediately my brain went, Oh, Oh shit. This is going to be kind of a hard one. Cause she's, she's a brand new athlete that I haven't worked with before. Um, and it's just kind of like, but if that's how you learn best, like if, if that's how, like if that's how you, you get the most out of yourself, that's just kind of something you have to adapt to. And that was, that was actually the second point or the, the last point that I was going to bring up is you, you need to adapt to the athlete's style and goals too. I think that's, that's the, the last big point when it comes to creating buy-in is, you know, you have to regularly encourage them to, to set goals, make sure that they're not just super, you know, numbers focused uh, and, also listen to the way that they, they like to get feedback because, you know, there's, there's going to be some athletes that are just not super fantastic at getting like a bunch of queuing. There's going to be some that, uh, that need more and you have to be, you sort of have to be water-like in that sense. You have to, you know, fill, fill whatever water cup. I'm, I'm trying to quote, quote Bruce Lee there and failing miserably, but you, you know what I mean? I don't know that one. Phil, uh, to be honest, I don't know either. What's you the quote? Oh God. So, so, um, Bruce, just remember that we, we get everything about 10 years later in Australia. So it might not have come to the shores. I'm going to just Google be like water, but go on Joe. It's, uh, I mean the quote, the quote, I'm, I'm going to fail miserably at this, but it's, it's like, uh, um, water can become anything. Uh, you put water into a cup that becomes the cup. 
Um, water can flow, it can crash, be like water. You actually got really close. I just Googled it. Bruce Lee's be like water quote explained. Um, blah, 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 blah. Where was it? He said, he said that empty your mind, be like water. Water's formless. It has no shape. It becomes whatever it's poured into. Water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend. Yeah. Okay. I dig that. So that's, that's essentially, that's, that's the whole, everything that we've just been talking about. That's what it comes down to. You have to be like water when you're a coach, you need to be adaptable. Sometimes you need to be a little bit more aggressive. Sometimes you need to need to be able to step back uh, and you need to be able to take the, the form of whatever the athlete needs. And that's, that's how you create buy-in. Be like game day nutrition, rehydrate TM. You know, it's like water, but better. <laughs> it's called, it's called hydro, by the way. That's the, the product. Yeah, that's the product. Yeah. Alex. Well, I think you um, kind of bridged the gap nicely into the next question, which is um, about communicating with athletes. So I guess the first, the first uh, port of call is what do you believe the key tenets of communication to be with your athletes? Sure. Um, so I think the, the, the biggest thing is creating and encouraging regular feedback loops. Um, so I, I'm kind of big on this because there seems to be a culture these days where um, you may not necessarily hear from your coach as often as you should. Um, and there seems to be no expectation or the other way around and the athlete, like they don't like you, you expect them to check in with you every so often and then you don't hear from them. So I think that establishing uh, like the expectations with communication are, are, are really, really big. Um, right at the beginning. So for, at least for my athletes, um, the way that I, I work with them is, is I'm, I'm planning on checking in with them, uh, post every single session. That's, that's how I do it. Um, some, some of them are a little bit more independent. Like there are those that are programming only that I work with that I'll only talk to, you know, every now and again when they have a question. Um, but the point in that is, is that there is a, a level of expected communication on both ends of us. And that I think just, creates a relationship that is is very centered in that communication you know just knowing that you're always going to be able to talk back and forth with your coach uh, and on my end knowing that the athlete is going to be able to give me uh, effective feedback and I, I think that that's something that's kind of undervalued when it comes to coaching in general is, is, is having those expectations and, and knowing how often um, you're going to be able to get feedback and from that being able to build on that feedback loop um, in such a way that you're able to give feedback at regular intervals that match with the, style, the uh, learning style of the athlete. Um, so I, I do find that for, you know, most of the individuals that I work with being able to, you know, e even just, even just be able to discuss training, even if it went fantastic, um, doing that at, at pretty regular intervals seems to create uh, a better relationship with the athlete and, and, lets me keep my finger on the pulse of their training uh, a lot better than other things. And that, that is a pretty recent change to be fair. Um, but I found nothing but success with that so far. So from the athlete's perspective, what types of feedback are you looking for as a coach? And does that differ person to person? Um, it, I mean, it definitely does. Uh, there's, there's a few general things that I'm always, that I'm always looking for. Um, I want to know, uh, you know, essentially how the session felt, um, at least qualitatively, uh, I, you know, I, I don't necessarily focus on like quantitative feedback for that in the, in the short term. I, I don't know that that's a hundred percent necessary, uh, but just, just knowing a little bit more about how, how it felt, um, how their day was prior to, like if they had a pretty, pretty stressful day, um, I think that's, that's important to contextualize. Um, I'm always checking in with them on, uh, you know, if, if, 
you know, there's any sort of nagging aches and pains here and there. Um, or if, heck, if there's any sort of development of, of pain, that's always something that I, I ask them to be straightforward with. Um, and just uh, checking in almost on, a, almost on a, a daily basis on how they are feeling in terms of their progression towards their goals. Because like I said, goal setting is something that I, I kind of make uh, an important part of my working with athletes. Um, and as far as how it changes, you know, there, there's something, some people that, uh, certain parts get emphasized more, like a lot of the, the newer lifters that I work with, they might get, you know, some more technique feedback, um, because that's, that's just something that they need and they haven't really mastered. Whereas, you know, some of the more, um, you know, elite athletes that I get, it's, it's more just kind of talking about the quality of training and, and, uh, how productive their sessions were, things like that. So something that I've found, and I think I really have picked this up since I've been working with Bryce, um, is that when I give my athletes a degree of structure to the feedback that I want to get back from them, it helps, it helps filter their thoughts a little bit. And that process of, of triaging the information that they're going to pass to me and, and thinking through specific reflection questions and thinking, and sort of just like thinking, how am I going to take all these, all these like nebulous things that are in my head and how would I actually summarize my training experience and communicate it to somebody else? It's that process that happens internally that I think is almost more valuable than what I say back in some ways. And so I've found that I've found that giving people a structure to their check-in has really, really helped. And then beyond that, I say, you know, whack in anything else you want to tell me, but just by forcing them to go through that structure has been very helpful. And what I used to find when I didn't give people quite as much structure was I would get, I would get things that were like diary entries that were still kind of insightful, but just lacked direction and lacked consistency. And because people didn't touch on the same things, it was almost like they weren't keeping their finger on the pulse to the same degree. Whereas if I say like week on week, I want you to like, say you identified that, you know, people's training is really shaped by like their life stresses. If I said week on week, I want you when you check in with me to tell me like how your levels of stress have been in your life and how that's affected your mental approach to training. If they just filter their training reflections through that, they start to actually develop a sense of awareness about, about the impact of say stress on their training and perhaps what they can do to manage it much better. Whereas if I just acknowledge that, but then don't say check in on that again next week, then I just don't hear anything about stress. And so it just becomes a constant undercurrent of their training that they haven't, that they haven't acknowledged and built a self-management skill set around. Um, does that make some sense? Yeah. Is there any of that that rings? No, it, it, it makes, it makes perfect sense. I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm going to hurt my neck cause I'm nodding so much. Um, the, uh, the, the thing, the thing with that too, is I think that's something that develops over time. You kind of learn to, to value certain variables a little bit more than others when it comes to each individual athlete. Um, and that's definitely something that I'll, that I'll ask about, you know, more often, like there are, there are some athletes that I work with, like if we're talking about technique, like I was just saying before, there's some athletes that I work with that, like if I give them too much technique feedback, I know their training is going to suck. I just know it because, you know, even if I give them, you know, we'll, we'll say, we'll rephrase that, um, rather than too much at once, even if I give them, like, if I give them too much regularly, their training is going to suck because they're just constantly going to be thinking about it. That's their particular, their particular style. So being able to, to, to de-emphasize certain things and, and bring up other things, I think is just a natural progression of the way you should communicate to your athletes in the first place. Um, so I, I like that point a lot and it's definitely something that, that I can say that I, I do, um, I, I will say I have a little bit of a bias towards um, like technical proficiency on, on certain things um, because I, I do, one, my, my degree program in, in uni was really 
really well versed in that was acquiring uh, technique and, and skill practice. Um, we, we had a lot of like movement stuff despite it being a, an exercise science program. Um, so I, I, I will bias that sometimes, but I'll always kind of filter it the lens of the athlete's training style. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, I think that essentially exactly what you said is, is right along the lines of what I was hitting on before. Like, it's like you have this, you have all of these different things that you look for in the athlete. And then if something is, is more or less important, it's always important to hit on that at regular intervals. Uh, like I was talking about at the beginning. What about, um, what about troubleshooting communication that you deem to be poor? If you have an athlete who is checking in irregularly, or is not providing you feedback that you consider useful, or you just are sensing a degree of disengagement from when they are getting in touch with you. Um, what types of things would you do to remedy it? And what types of things do you, do you think contribute to that? Sure. Um, well, the first thing, like I actually just went through this with an athlete a little, little while ago. Um, the first thing that, I, that I'm going to do besides just, you know, reaching out. To, so I use, I use Slack for my coaching. Um, so the, the, if I'm, you know, reaching out to them and they're, they're not responding on there. The first thing that I'm going to do is send them an email and say, Hey, you know, we, we chatted at very regular intervals. I, I think it might be good for us to kind of sit down face to face and, you know, reaffirm our goals. Um, so I, I, I didn't mention this before, but I, I also I get in uh, you know, a call with an athlete at least once per training cycle, if I can help it. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll try to have those at, at regular intervals as well. But if, if I'm really not hearing from person, that's always my first remedy point, because I think sometimes it's very easy, especially if like, you know, like I'll use a combination of like text-based voice-based and video-based feedback. Um, but it's, it's not, you know, it's not like you're talking to me face-to-face -face all the time, you know? And I think sometimes that sort of disconnect between, you know, me as a person and me as the the voice that's like giving you all these, these things that we need to work on um, can, can sometimes get in the way of that. So I think just almost, almost kind of rehumanizing myself to the, the athlete is always my first step with that. Um, and usually that, that takes care of it. Um, they're the athlete that I just mentioned before. Uh, they just kind of told me like, they feel like they're a little bit too um, independent with their, their, training to, to really need the level of feedback that we were talking about. Um, and that's why he hasn't really been talking to me. So we just decided to, to move to like a programming only type thing. And that was, that was what was best for him. Um, if something like that didn't work though, if, if that, like, let's say, you know, we had that sort of call and uh, they, they were like, okay, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll be that way more often. Um, I would, after that point, if, if we are still not getting the feedback at, uh, at regular loops, I would probably, at that point have, have a pretty frank discussion with them and just be like, Hey, look, um, you know, I, in order to coach you effectively, I need, you know, I need us to at least have this, you know, regular rapport. Um, because I, I don't, I don't think that I can effectively do my job if I'm not getting some kind of feedback from you. And at least at, at you know, this inter at, at this interval, um, it's okay if you're a little bit more independent with things and that's fine. But, uh, I, I, I'm still going to need to at least be involved in the process. And if that's not something that is, is going to uh, work for you, I think maybe, you know, a different, a different coach or maybe even just working on a different program might be, might be what's best. And um, I know that sounds a little bit frank, like why, why in the world would you ever like, you know, essentially like fire an athlete that way. Um, but some people just, you know, they're just not necessarily built for coaching. And, and if that's the case, like, I don't want to, I don't want to waste their time just bugging them all the time. 
Yeah, that's really important that you've kind of individualized a check-in process with each lifter. Like some people are multiple times per week or you know, in more, more infrequent than that and then even like cycle by cycle, which is really cool. Um, and that was kind of our next point. So we can skip to the next one after that, which is um, uh, what degree of autonomy do you allow your lifters in their training? And I'm talking about stuff like um, load selection, technique adjustments, uh, et cetera. Sure. Um, so I, I, I wrote down when I was looking over the outline you guys sent me, the only thing that I really wrote down here was that autonomy builds good athletes. It really does. And we, we kind of already hit on this before is I'm, I'm always looking to build an athlete centered approach um, with the people that I work with. And then I think you autonomy just needs to be a part of that in order for you to, to build that, that level of, of relationship with an athlete. So uh, a lot of the individuals that I work with, uh, pretty much all of the things you just named, load selection technique manipulations, um, even volume adjustments uh, are things that I, I will kind of leave up to them. I'll also give them real, you know, general guidelines. Like when it comes to, to load selection, of course, um, you know, I will, I'll give them ranges if we're using percentages or obviously I'll allow them to auto-regulate it if they feel comfortable with that just based on like an RIR or RPE based system. Um, their technique manipulations, I actively encourage people to make adjustments if they feel like they need it. Um, some of the best, just switching over to like me, me being an athlete, some of the best techniques changes that I've made have been independent of conversations with my own coach. It's, it's you know, it's been like something that I've seen that I've wanted to try that I think works well. And I, I think that it would be a mistake to like take those, those feelings that an athlete is having about the way that their, their lift is going and discount because they're the one actually doing the lift right like you can look at it all day long but you're never actually going to be inside of the athlete's body feeling what they're feeling when they're doing the lift um, so i think that that's extremely important and i actively encourage it um, and when something like that goes well i'll take it one step further uh, and i'll use the the platform that i use slack has the ability to pin messages and videos i will pin it to our thread so that we always can reference that we can always look at that and say hey you made this adjustment or I made this adjustment and you did it and things felt really good on this day. So let's always remember this. Um, in a, in a similar vein, uh, as far as volume adjustment goes, like I'll have some athletes that are a little bit finicky with their recovery. So there are, there are certain, like, I can't exactly predict every single time. Like there's a, there's a girl that I have that's a, a nurse and she, she works, you know, various cyclical shifts and her recovery is super unpredictable. So rather than just giving her like strictly, you know, three sets of 10 or something like that or, or whatever, if we're in like a volume phase or um, I'll, I'll give her rep ranges, I'll give her set ranges. Um, and those will, those will vary anywhere between like two and three reps. Like, like it could be as little as seven reps and as high as, as 15. And, and here's like a, here's like a relative RPE range. And then we just build based off of that. And, and the, the goal over time is to try to load one of those different adjusters to, to overall tonnage. So, you know, if you can do more reps over time, that's great. If you can do, um, you know, more load on one set. And then we just sort of quantify that over time. And that's worked very well for her. Um, she's, uh, she's going down to the new uh, weight class that we have in, uh, in America, the 69 kilo class right now. And she's, she's still gotten stronger just doing that. Um, and it took a little bit of time to get to that point, but you know, just being able to have that freedom, I think, like, I, I think as a younger coach, like when you guys, uh, when I came to, to Sydney and met you guys, when, when I was, when I was interning for TSA, I never would have thought of something like that before. But now being an older coach, I've just realized that you, 
you don't have, you can't have these static models and expect people to always be able to progress on them. It's just, it's not realistic and it doesn't fit into their, their life as well. Um, so I think in, in general, um, the only thing that I would say is, is relatively strict is just kind of making sure that they get in their training throughout the week and uh, they're doing so in a way that they enjoy. That's the only thing that I'm like, yes, we need to do that. And that's about it. So as a coach, I'm sure you'll like this. Tell me if you're not. Um, but as a coach, I can find it kind of hard to say no to athletes. I think, you know, when an athlete comes to you and says, I want to do this or I want to try this, my instinct, both because I want them to be happy and because athletes that want to do things tend to do the things that they do well is to say yes. But sometimes, sometimes athletes want to do stuff that is unproductive or sometimes you can see what is like a well-intentioned desire coming from a maybe not very productive thought process or just like a pattern of behavior where people just fail to commit to things for the longer term or whatever. And you have to kind of rein them in. So how do you, how do you have those discussions and, and are there any points that are like, that are real, um, like giveaways or like, or identifiers for you of like changes that might not be productive or just approaches from an athlete that might not be productive that you do have to say no to. Sure. Um, I think, so I, I do have those discussions. I think there are, there are two, there are two main times where I'm going to have to say no to an athlete. Um, the first is if they are trying to rush their progress for no sake, other than that they want to pro be progressing faster. Um, I, I would say that's the, the conversation that I have the most, the athletes just kind of like, Oh, well let's, you know, let's add another, um, let's add another session. Uh, you know, they, they let, let's pretend they just hit a, just hit a PR. Um, and then, you know, they're, they're excited and all that. What do you want to, you know, we're having that conversation. What do you want to do for the next block? Oh, well, I want to add another squat session. Cause I feel like I'm not progressing fast enough. It's just like, well, you just hit a PR and it's just like, yeah, but I could do more. And, and that's the thing, more isn't always better in, in that case. Um, and, and I, again, as a younger coach, I, I probably would have been like, yeah, sure, let's do that. But then that's one of those times where like you look at the athlete and there's a very good chance that adding that session is, you know, cause you, you're essentially, it, let's like, let's pretend you didn't equate the volume or anything like that. You're adding all this training volume. You're adding another day where they're in the gym and they may not recover. Uh, you, you have to be wary of those things. So, um, Making a change just for the sake of, of getting more uh, is usually one of the, the only times that I'm going to say no. Now, obviously, you know, if, if, if progression isn't quite there, then yeah, okay, maybe we can play around with things like that. But, you know, just, just being greedy with your progress, I think, is a, is a big, big no-no um, because it can oftentimes do more harm than good. Um, and the, the second time I would say is, is if, uh, if it – reflects a pattern of what's gotten them injured. Um, now, obviously I, you know, I, I don't want my athletes to be injured ever, uh, but you know, it, it does happen. We're doing a lot of repetitive motion as power lifters. Um, and at that time, you know, I, one of the things that I think, I think the biggest factor in injury, and I guess this is documented well enough in, in the research, it seems like a mismanagement of stress is usually one of the biggest factors that's, that's related to, to becoming injured. And as a result of that, I'll, I'll often kind of take notes. If an athlete does get injured, I'll look at their training and I'll look at their life and I'll just make note of that. And like, I, I can use an example. I had an athlete who um, had had a, just like a, a minor uh, back strain and he 
he really wanted to go back to, we got him out of it. You know, he, he, uh, he was back to pulling. We were only pulling um, once per week. And I had noticed that when he pulled twice per week, his back was just always kind of, he was always saying, oh, my back feels beat up, my back feels beat up. And then that eventually led to him, you know, in that position where he had that minor strain. And it was, it was just kind of like when he's like, oh, well, we could go back to pulling twice a week. And I was just like, no, we, we shouldn't do that. We're making progress right now. And that before, that was just too much stress for you. And a lot of signs that suggest that that was associated with that you became injured. In. So let's be a little bit more smart and put you in a position where you can just keep progressing, where you can you know keep a lower level of stress and, and, and make better progress with less. Um, so yeah, those, are, those are the two times that I have to say, usually have to say no to making adjustments with athletes. But I'm with you where... Otherwise, as long as it's a reasonable, um, as long as it's any sort of reasonable adjustment, I'm usually going to say yes. Yeah, something that I've found um, as well is that like athletes don't really want to feel like they're going on your fitness journey. Like they want to feel like to a degree they're doing things their way, which ties into what you've said about autonomy up till now and that they are defining their goals. And so I think if you're too rigid as a coach and saying this is what you can and can't do, you can alienate people. But I do think the two instances you identify would be really good ones to say no. When you do have to say no like that, do you do you attempt to compromise or do you sometimes just have to like basically put the heel down and say, you know, no nah, dog, we're not doing that? You know, as a as a younger coach, I would say that I probably compromised a little bit more and it's it's bit me in the butt. Um, but now it's it's one of those things that I if it is one of those two situations, I'll just kind of like firmly take a stand on. And I think that I think that because that happens very little, if at all, it kind of gets my point across because it's it's very rare that I'm saying no. Um, I don't have to be like ultra like authoritative in that way. I just kind of have to say like no, here's why, and usually that's kind of the end of it. Do you ever find the reverse is true that you're having to convince athletes? either to do more or that they're capable of more and they can progress faster and you have to like hype man them a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I don't want to, I mean, I guess I can generalize a little bit. I I do see this most often with, with some of my female clients and and that's not saying that, you know, girl athletes aren't aren't hard workers or anything like that, but especially with like a lot of the newer uh, girls that I work with, I'll often find that they don't realize how capable they are. Like they'll, like I have a girl who's, who's 15 and she's, she's honestly one of the most gifted power lifters I've, I've ever worked with in terms of her like ability to just, just go in and get the job done and, and like just train despite all these other things. But she, she'll often like under, she'll undershoot what she has on the day. Uh, and I'll, I'll have to just like, I'll have to come in and essentially like give her like a big speech yeah be the hype man essentially and just be like be like look you're you're capable of so much more and i'll have to i'll have to go as far as like giving examples and and being like like you know hey look at look at this individual look at that um and and just being like you know you look at all these people that you look up to and you can be you can be doing so much more here um and you're capable of so much more and uh, thankfully it's worked, it's worked so far, but I, I, I definitely see that most often in like newer, newer female, honestly newer guy lifters too, pretty much newer lifters, uh, are, are always the ones that need a little bit more of a, a push. Um, but I, I'll be a hundred percent honest. I'm, I'm a little bit more conservative these days, uh, than what I used to be. Like if, if I'm seeing a reasonable level of progress, um, I'm, I'm 
keeping it there and, I, and I'm not changing it because the grass is not always greener. Awesome, man. All right, let's talk about deadlifts. So you've kind of built a nice reputation um, for coaching some really good deadlifters. And even more impressive to me is that you've been able to progress those really strong deadlifters into even stronger deadlifters. Um, you know, you've got many USAPL records and unofficial world records um, under your belt as coach. As coach, <clears throat> I'm just curious if there's anything that you believe that you're doing that's different to others. Sure. So the first thing, uh, first step to training a lot of strong deadlifters is to coach deadlift Panda first, because <laughs> then then they all then they all get that uh, that rapport. Um, but in all honesty, I, I wouldn't say there isn't like I wouldn't say there's anything super magic about the way that I do things. Um, I, I uh, here's here's what I here's the way that I approach deadlift training. You've got to pay him to get the magic. That's what it is. He's- <laughs> That he said, guys, this is an audio only podcast. He said that and he winked at the camera so like egregiously when he said it. So it's, you know, like whatever it is, $79.99 a week or whatever. And you can find out the magic. Isn't that right? There's no keys. <laughs> yeah. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Okay. 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 Tell um, them what you tell everybody else then, Joe. That's fine. But yeah, here's, here's, so here's my general philosophy. And, and I wrote this down just so I can be clear. Um, so especially with the gifted deadlifters, what I'll see a lot is that I feel like they're doing like too much. Um, and I've, I've almost found universally that holding them back a little bit more and creating a more reasonable rate of progress, uh, reasonable levels of volume seems to be important in a programming sense. Um, and I guess as of late, um, I, I've tried to pull the intensity of most um uh, or of the most gifted lifters, uh, deadlifts down more so. Whereas I think a lot of people's reaction would be to, to kind of just give them more because they're gifted that way. Um, you know, the idea being of course that because they're, you know, good deadlifters, they can probably, um, handle a little bit more training volume because they either recover better because they have better leverages, et cetera. Um, but it, I, my idea there with having kind of the opposite be true is, is because they're so good at it, they probably don't need as much to progress. Um, and, and we almost kind of focus our efforts on kind of automating that and, and working on the other things that they need to work on. Um, I really like, I'll, I'll often, as, as far as like a peak intensity, I, I really won't have them going beyond maybe like an RP seven on the, at least not on purpose, of course, um, until they're maybe inside like six weeks, um, of training. Um, I'll also throw my singles in depending on the lifter. Of course, this is a, a general thing, but I'll also throw singles in a little bit later. Um, compared to whereas the like the, the norm these days seems to be just like singles all the time. Um, I'll, I'll throw it in a lot later. Um, like I said, usually within those like six weeks or so, uh, whereas I might put squat and bench uh, a little bit earlier in as far as singles go. Um, and I'll, I'll also put a, a large emphasis on uh, hypertrophy uh, based work in, in like a hinge type pattern, which I, I think is sometimes overlooked in favor of upper back work. So, so oftentimes you'll see like deadlift protocols are, are usually paired with a bunch of upper back work. And even though there is some hip hinge work, it's not really a big emphasis. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll kind of put that in as, as a sort of driver with, uh, with deadlifts. So that could be something as, as specific as just like high rep deadlifts. Like we might have primary competition deadlift work and then we do some high rep deadlifts, almost like an accessory um, or something, something a little bit less stressful, like an SLVL or any other sort of hip hinge pattern. But beyond that, I, 
I don't think there's, I don't think I'm doing anything like medically different. Usually, usually it's kind of cycling between competition deadlifts and, and maybe, maybe a little bit of pause. Um, every now and again, I'll throw some beltless work in just to, just to make sure that they're keeping the loading down on a certain day. Um, but honestly, nothing super special beyond that. Yeah. It's funny. Um, what you said near the start there that like we often look at good deadlifters and go, this person can probably tolerate more deadlifts and or harder deadlifts than a less gifted deadlifter because they're probably well built to deadlift and maybe recover better from it. And that's certainly, that's certainly a way that I have thought and a way that I've approached coaching a couple of good deadlifters. And when I was writing my own programs, cause like I find doing lots of deadlifts, not very hard. Um, but I have also found a similar thing to you that still erring towards conservatism seems to work for a lot of people. And that often what you find is, with those gifted deadlifters, you can you can do lots of work that is reasonably submaximal, and then have the odd like indicator session or indicator indicator set or something put in there that slightly harder exposure that just tells you like is there actually progress happening from this easy underlying work where otherwise you mightn't see it because what would be tough work for other people is so submaximal for them. So you have the odd heavier exposure, you see things are going well, and then you can just pull things back and just let it simmer away, and they do fine. Um, I've definitely had, like, I've had that observation corroborated now enough times to really think that you're probably onto something. And particularly as people get more and more advanced, the the trade-off between giving them very hard work all the time just to ensure that they're ticking along um, and actually getting in really productive work and having the rest of their training progress well becomes bigger and bigger. And you risk turning somebody into like a deadlift hero almost by virtue of dedicating all their training and recovery resources towards a deadlift because they're already good at it when you could actually build up the things that are making them a less complete power lifter by pulling back a little, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's my, it's one of my goals to get Angelo Fortino on the, uh, the IPF world team. I don't know if that necessarily means by beating Russ, but we could definitely put him in a place where he has the, uh, what, what is it now? The highest good lift points or whatever. Uh, that's, that's kind of how our team selection works, by the way, if you, if you don't know, uh, all of the first place people get the first right of refusal and then there's an extra spot that always, uh, goes to the person with uh, the best best chance of placing at Worlds in combination with their uh, point score. Matt, um, you mentioned something else that is very close to my heart, which is which is hypertrophy based hinging work. Um, I've I've wanged on this podcast so much about how if people got stronger through their hamstrings and more competent at hinging, many of them would get better at deadlifting, and probably they'd find a little bit less upper back strain as well because their hips would actually be able to sit back a little bit more and keep their spine a bit more extended um, mm-hmm. as they pull. What are some movements that you find really effective for doing that and how might you place it in a program? Sure. Um, so like I, like I mentioned before, one of them uh, is actually just high rep deadlifts. Um, I, I think oftentimes people think about, um, like they think about uh, specificity only in terms of like the actual exercise selection. But if you think about it, specificity is also just based on how close you are to doing that one rep max single, at least in terms of powerlifting, right? So if you're doing like sets of 10 on deadlifts, those aren't very specific. You know, you can, you can think about that as a, as a variant. Um, so I'll, if I did, if I did something like that, I would probably program it on its own day. I would, I would have that as, as like a secondary, uh, deadlift day. And then the other day it'd be like a combination of, uh, you know, low rep, moderate work and, and, uh, maybe some sort of, of, as you termed it, indication set just to see where we're at. Um, although those, at least during a, the first portions of the program probably wouldn't be quite as intense. Um, 
but most of the time, what I'm usually finding is some kind of some kind of variation that is uh, helpful to their their stance. So if they're a sumo puller, um, I'm a really big fan of uh, Candido's movement, the uh, the Candido deadlift. Uh, ever since he put that out there, I've been putting that into a lot of my sumo pullers programs and using that as a means to kind of drive hypertrophy in that because it's it's so strange that it's it's an odd combination of of uh, so many different movements, but it seems to work very well. Um, I think the the undervalued part of that is that it, you also get a little bit of adductor work to the, the width of the stance. Um, so that's always useful. Um, usually, if I'm programming that, I'll probably put that um, after the secondary deadlift day, so the the uh, the less intense one, um, just so you can put a little bit more into that, and then that way on your primary deadlift day, that's really all you kind of have to worry about. Um, the the other ones that I'll typically use, like I mentioned before, are usually like an SLDO or an RDL. I'm actually favoring the SLDL more than an RDL lately, um, just because I've anecdotally speaking seen it work a little bit better for people. Um, I, I don't, I, I can't give you an exact reason for that. Maybe it's just because people, I don't know, I find prescribed RDLs more often than SLDLs. Um, and so maybe it's just kind of like the novelty of it. Um, but usually if, if it's something like that, I'll, I'm, I don't have a problem programming that even up you know, to twice a week. Um, and I'll, I'll usually just throw that after, after both deadlift days. Um, that's kind of getting into a little bit of my like larger programming philosophy in general, um, which if you, if you haven't seen that, that post on, on Instagram, I made it about it. Um, generally speaking during a, a volume phase, I'm usually kind of putting the intensity of the actual power lifts, uh, a little bit more back and focusing on technique. Uh, refinement for them and then I'm really focusing on pushing uh, a close variant like I just mentioned like that for you know more more volume and, and more intensity to hopefully induce hypertrophy um, so in, in those particular cases those might be after both days it might be one day and, and that, that just kind of comes down to you know what the athlete can handle slash what they need so from a coaching perspective if you like you mentioned potentially doing like quite high rep deadlifts um, for, for hypertrophy work, which I think can be great. I'm not saying this to say it's bad, but because as powerlifters, we're so wired to kind of move efficiently or like almost like minimize effort to maximize output. What sure. you often see with people who do have a hip weakness is as those sets go on, particularly, you know, they will start to round and things through the back so that, so that, you know, the hamstrings are working at a slightly shorter muscle length. The glutes aren't having to do as much work. So they're actually shifting load from the hips, which you're trying to train into the back. And a way to get around that is movement constraints. So things like your SLDLs and so on can work really well for that. Um, but as a coach, do you, do you find yourself communicating to athletes and, and saying, you know, we're doing these high rep deadlifts to whatever it is, help, help build your hip strength up. And so I want you to focus on X and Y in your technique, or do you prescribe with like load limitations or technical limitations that ensure that they're not getting to the point where they are load shifting, or do you just sort of let it happen and say whatever movement they're expressing is their most efficient movement. And I'm going to be happy with it. Like how, what's your take? Um, so if we're talking specifically for high rep deadlifts, uh, like high rep competition style deadlifts, it's usually one of two things. It's either, um, I'm, I'm limiting the load on purpose. Um, and I'm, I'm telling them to focus, on actually focus on feeling the muscles move, um, which there, there actually is a little bit of data if you if you are actually focusing on that mind muscle connection, um, that it can help that. Um, or I'm prescribing uh, repetition still within sort of like that 10 RM range, uh, but the RMs are a little bit lower as a result. Um, I know you guys had you guys had my coach uh, 
Zach Robinson and, and Josh uh, from Data Driven Strength on. Actually, I think that was your last episode. Um, and their, their stuff on proximity to failure, uh, I don't know how much you guys have looked into their stuff on that, but that's really kind of influenced that decision for me. Um, and essentially, as long as you're, as long as you're inside of a certain, certain load, there still seems, or at least there seems to be some, some suggestion in the research now that you don't necessarily need to go to properties, uh, to induce hypertrophy in that sense. Um, so I'll sometimes program it that way if I trust the athlete to auto-regulate auto properly and if, if we've just decided that that's, that's a, a reasonable goal for them. Um, but most of the time, I would say it's a limited load and a focus on muscular contraction over using it as traditional, like, we'll say, typical powerlifting work where we're a little bit more focused on technique, that sort of deal. Sure. All right. Um, I, unless, Alex, you have a further question, I'd love to give you a chance to kind of sum up some of the things that you've said and circle back to anything that you'd love to touch on again. So if you were to sum up maybe like how to be a more effective coach or athlete and then anything that jumps out from specific programming for us, that would be great. Then we're going to take a quick break and hit you with the four questions then. Sure. Um, so I think, I think just in summary, uh, being a better coach is, is all about being uh, an athlete centered coach. You need to be able to work with your athlete, not, uh, not work against them. You need to be able to uh, listen to them and provide feedback as well as, um, you know, as an athlete, you need to be able to, to communicate with your coach and have an effective relationship with them to the point that you, the two of you are, are working collaboratively, collaboratively. Um, I think that that involves effective communication and levels of communication that are regularly established and followed. Uh, and if there is a breakdown in that, or if you feel like you need less or more, uh, there needs to be that level of communication where you can, or excuse me, that level of relationship where you can openly and honestly discuss that. Uh, and then in terms of programming, um, like I said, there's, there's really nothing special about the way that I, I program for deadlifts. I just think that uh, doing a little bit less tends to, tends to bode well for almost everyone. So why wouldn't it go that way for, uh, early deadlifters. Um, hypertrophy, hypertrophy work in the hinge pattern is great. And that's about it. Extremely well summed up. Did you do debating at school? I'm curious. No, I did not. Okay. Cause that's, uh, I, I was in plays. In plays. Yes. In musicals. Really? What, what musicals? I used to do the school musicals as well. And I had like zero talent as either an actor, singer or dancer, but I loved it. What did you do? <laughs> um, so I was in, so I, I was in, uh, I was in a lot of different musicals. I was in one every single year of high school. Um, my my best role to well, the date, I wish I was still doing them, uh, is is Shutter and Rosa Um I was uh, I was in Into the Woods as Rapunzel's Prince. Uh, I was in uh, Susical, which is the Dr. Seuss musical. Yeah, my um, brother did the Susical. He was um, what's the bird? The bird that's kind of a, I think they were a little bit camp and weird. Um, they, yeah, that, that was a weird musical. I, I really wish that we didn't do that one. That was like my junior year and, and the first like chance I was going to have to like have like a really good role. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't recall the bird, um, to be honest, I kind of blacked that one out. Um, but I've been in guys and dolls. I was in clue the musical, like the, the board game clue. Okay. Um, what else was I in? Uh, I was in an opera that I don't remember the name of. Um, I was in, I did, I did a play as well. Um, it was called Rumors. It's by Neil Simon, who's a pretty famous American playwright. That was that was really fun. Um, I can't think of any. I, I don't. There's one other. Oh, uh, I was in a I was in a rock and roll version of Cinderella as the prince. That was cool. Uh, I was in uh, a chorus line 
or excuse me, I wasn't in a chorus line. No, I was, I was on stage crew for that. That was when I decided I wanted to do musicals. And I was in a musical called Disco Inferno, which was literally just a bunch of disco songs thrown together and given this very vague, uh, like easily solvable story that, that like just didn't mix. It, it was very clearly just something that was written to be given to high schools and be like, Hey, you can involve like 200 kids in this production and it'll go super swimmingly. So. Far out, this guy, many talents. The reason I asked about debating was because you summed up the things you'd said so well. And like the fourth speaker in a debate, all their job is to do is to just spit out everything they've said one last time. You nailed it. But having heard that you're a, you're a musical dude, I'm, I'm looking forward to in the four questions, perhaps you singing us your answer to number four. I know you know the questions. So <laughs> we'll take a very quick break. We're going to come back for Joe Stanek, the musical. Welcome back to Weekly Weights. We're here with Joe and we're going to hit him with the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person. Joe, are you ready? I am ready. So Joe listens to the podcast. I think he's listened to every single episode. Is that right? Yes. Twice, sir. Nice. Twice. Thank you. Um, so Joe knows the question, so he's prepared. He's been there for months, actually. He's been waiting for us to ask him to come on the show. So. He did message asking yeah. a lot, like a number of times and eventually we were like, oh, fuck. Pretty Fine. big artistic drought over here in Australia. We're <laughs> so needing some fill-off. Yeah, we are expecting really good answers. So, All right. All right. Question one, if you could take someone out to dinner, dead or alive, who would it be? Uh, okay, this might be a vanilla answer, but it would be my grandfather. Um, he, he is still alive, uh, but I, I rarely see him anymore. And growing up, my grandfather was always my hero. Um, he, uh, he was the youngest... Uh, member of his family and they were quite poor um, and just through his own sort of uh, sheer will and hard work he uh, went to the University of Notre Dame got his got his degree and got a full scholarship to study law at NYU and uh, he became a successful lawyer and eventually the president judge of uh, which is where I'm from back in Pennsylvania um, and so he sort of built himself up and he's always he's always so full of wisdom um, and most importantly he and I uh, you know, we don't always see eye to eye on, on a lot of different things. Um, and I think that it's always important to sit down and, and listen to people's point of view when you don't see eye to eye. Um, and that's led to a lot of great conversations with my grandfather. And I have not seen him in person in a very long time because of this pandemic. Um, so if there's anybody I could think would be him. I got to say, I was, I was going to mention the pandemic and you guys are approaching holiday season right now. I imagine with like your case numbers and things, seeing particularly your grandparents, would be a very hard thing to do. Have you been able to stay in touch at all? Like you've been on the phone or anything? You know, we've, we've called, but uh, despite being uh, retired, my grandfather's not very retired at all. He still he still serves on a lot of different committees in uh, in Pennsylvania as, as far as like in their justice system. So he's usually pretty busy. So I, I don't really get to talk to him a whole lot. Um, so I've talked to him, but not nearly as much as I'd like to. Sure. Awesome. All right. Question two, who's your favorite athlete of all time? All right. So I might, I spoiled this a little bit earlier, but it's Bruce Lee. Um, now people don't, so everybody knows Bruce Lee as a, as a, you know, an actor, like he was on, he was on all these different martial arts movies, but what a lot of people don't know is he had an undefeated fighting record in all the fights that he took. He never lost. Um, but the reason that he's my favorite athlete of all time is because he was such a renaissance man. He could do everything. Um, he trained so many amazing champions. Uh, and I think that 
what what makes a great athlete isn't just their their record on you know the field or whatever they do it's it's what they do with the talent that they have and bruce lee passed that on to other people so it's a little bit it, it He's not really well known for being an athlete, but that's why he's my favorite athlete of all time is because you, you don't necessarily know that he was a fantastic athlete. He was, he was just so good at, at what he did um, in other places that it overshadowed the fact that he was still a fantastic athlete. Yeah, I was going to say, like, he's not even a real athlete. That's like saying your favorite athlete's Rocky or something. I mean, I mean that was going to be my second choice. I, you know what's weird? I've, since the end of last year, watched... Like, how many Rocky movies are there? Like, seven. There's too many. Uh, if you're including Creed, I think there's, like, seven, yeah. So, I, I've watched four or so of the seven. And as a character, he changes so much over the first few. Because, like, in the first one, dude can barely talk. He's, like, you know, he's a little bit... He's, like, humble and comes off a bit goofy and so on. And by the time... Is it Rocky Four where he fights Ivan Drago? Yes. Yeah. By the time he's yes. fighting Ivan Drago, the dude has the biggest chip on his shoulder. I swear. Like he's he's yeah, he's not humble at all. He's suddenly way more articulate. He's walking around like I don't know. It's just it's really different. Don't you think? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I just it's sad to see a character that that started as such a humble dude turning into a pretty arrogant guy. That's I guess that, I that's what happens with success, Will. I wouldn't know. That's why Joe's so arrogant now. <laughs> yeah, look yeah. at him. Absolute mogul. Three businesses sitting there. This is in your spare house, isn't it, Joe? You yeah, know, you this, use this one for podcasts you know, and things. Yeah. Just the podcast house. Yeah. No, I could tell because yeah, it's, that it's chandelier my, behind it's you right is off. silver. It's not even gold. So I was like, oh, yeah, this, you know, this is the trashy chandelier. Um, <laughs> Joe, we're on to question three. So, which movie or television character do you most resemble? All right, so I've gotten this a lot, um, and but I'm going to specify it more. So everybody always tells me that I look like Clark Kent, um, but I'm going to specify more because, as you can see, I've got quite the long hair now. Uh, I have not gotten my haircut since Arnold this year. Um, so I'm going to specify and say specifically 90s post-revival Superman, like after he died. If you look at him, he's got like he's got some long, long-ass hair. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Hold on, there's a there's a specific there's a specific photo that I that I found. Nick Cage. Oh my god. We yeah, we've just found a picture oh, of Nicholas Cage. That no, not that, <laughs> that is not it at all. Oh, not that one. Oh my god. Oh here 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 it is. All right, all right. If you can sub- if you can send us this picture of you of um of the Clark Kent that you most resemble. Then yeah, we'll make, I can. Um, we'll make the show promo pick that. Um, oh, perfect. Because that's pretty good value. While you're digging uh, that up, I want you to start warming up your vocal cords. Because question four is if your life was being made into a montage um, and you could pick the music that it was set to, what would you pick? And we're going to need a rendition of it to be 100% sure what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> all right, I sent you the photo. Um, on in your uh, Instagram DMs, uh, Will. Uh, um, thanks. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, okay, so <laughs> there, I I really picked the worst thing too because. <laughs> all right, so I, I picked I picked a combination of two songs, and there's a little reason there's a reason behind that. So, um, it is it's wait for it, 
and nonstop from Hamilton. Do you guys know? Do you guys know Hamilton? I know Hamilton, but it's not actually yet. Um, it's not yet being played in Australia. I think pre-pandemic they were talking about it starting either towards the end of this year or or start of next year, having a run here. But it's. I don't think it's yet hit theaters, so I haven't seen it. I couldn't be yeah. less interested in something. <laughs> really, really, Alex. Apparently, it is a. Apparently, it's a great musical. It is, and that, here's that why. Is, and this that is, is this, an oxymoron. This, this, this is no. This see. This is why. This is why I'm. I'm, I'm probably not going to be able to give you the best rendition of it. It is a hip hop musical. That's it's even mostly, worse. It's mostly rap. No, 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 no. I promise. You, listen to it. It is so good. Um, but the reason that I picked a combination of wait for it and, and nonstop, uh, not to spoil the musical, Alex, I know you're just dying to go watch it. Um, but the, the way that, uh, Hamilton is laid out is it's this sort of duality between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. So Aaron Burr is, is Alexander Hamilton's uh, political rival, or, or I should say was here in the United States. Uh, and they butt heads a ton, uh, during, during, uh, Hamilton's lifetime, and actually, uh, Burr ended up shooting Hamilton, and that's how he died. Um, but the the thing, the genius that I love about these two songs is that "Wait for It" and "Nonstop" are technically the same melody, just in different keys. And uh, that that could kind of be said of, of like Burr and Hamilton; they have different approaches to life. And the reason that I picked these two songs in in that specific order is I think that my life the way that I, I see it is there's a certain point that I kind of changed from an Aaron Burr to an Alexander Hamilton. And I think that it would be really cool to, for you know, this sort of key change to happen and one song transitions into the other uh, based on that. So um, I picked these specifically because of the, the, way, the way that the, the lines go. So the, the lines from Wait For It, which is uh, excuse me, Aaron Burr's song, um, is that he, he talks about the fact that he's uh, he's holding his plans close to his chest and he's kind of lying in wait, uh, and that's how he goes through life. He's he's waiting. He's waiting for his his moment. He's he's waiting for it because it's you know why why else would he be here if if there wasn't this moment? Um, and then in nonstop, which is you know sort of a little bit more about Hamilton, he talks about how or excuse me, Burr talks about how he's, he's every day, he's sort of, you know, fighting for what he wants, like he's, he's running out of time. Um, and Hamilton asks him specifically, he says, he says, uh, what are you waiting for? What do you stall for? If you stand for nothing, what will you fall for? And that's throughout my, my life, I've, I've kind of been this sort of, um, I've sort of always been this, this kind of, uh, sort of reserved individual. I've always kind of, you know, played my cards close to my chest like Aaron Burr did. But recently I've decided that I'm going to have some main character energy and I'm going to put myself in a position to get what I want. And I'm going to continue to do that until, you know, until I do and, and essentially keep working uh, for my goals in my life. Uh, like I, like I'm running out of time. So that's, that's why I picked those particular songs. Um, and I unfortunately am not going to rap them to you because I'm not great at rapping. This is some Clark Kent to Superman transmutation that you're talking about undergoing, right? There you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah I was going to say it started off really lame, but ended up, ended up kind of cool. Yeah, that was actually by but far. But I still don't want to watch the musical. That was by far the 
best articulated answer to that question that we've had. It's because he's had six months to prepare it. Yes, yeah, he's been begging. <laughs> I also, um, admittedly, before I became an exercise science major, was was an English major, so I'm really good at like digesting literature and, and providing meaning for it that may not necessarily be there. For sure. Okay, so we started. We've just spoken about was was it a political assassination when Hamilton was killed, or was it literally just like two dudes having beef? It was a duel, really. Yeah, yeah. So um, again, I'm not like the, the history expert, but at least in the musical, that you know, this is the big finale, right? Um, duels were very common in the United States. Um, they were a means of settling uh, disputes, um, and you you would challenge somebody. You would get a second. Your seconds would try to to work it out. If they couldn't, you would show up at at noon, and you would both walk ten paces apart and turn around and fire your pistol. And and if you uh, essentially, you know, if, if, even if the person, uh, even if one person didn't die, whoever struck uh, was was essentially considered the winner of the duel, the winner of the argument. Um, so that's how that's how Hamilton uh, died. But famously, he uh, threw away his shot, uh, and he instead of killing it or trying to kill Aaron Burr, he shot his pistol into the sky. Um, which is is kind of uh, like if if you've ever seen the logo logo for Hamilton, it's him like raising his arm above his head. That's him throwing away his shot. The, the, arguably the, the best song in the musical, uh, as much as I love the two that I named, uh, is, is called My Shot. Uh, and he, he talks about not throwing away his shot, which is like semi-ironic. Like he's talking about he's in this, he's in this position and he can, um, you know, he can give himself the life that he wants and, and help with the Revolutionary War and, and all this stuff. Um, it's actually very good, I, I promise you. Uh, I would, I'm I would, keen personally to see it, but Alex is not a man of culture. He's a man actually, of all nine nine repeats, that's it. Oh, I, okay. I, first of all, I love Brooklyn Nine-Nine. It is a great show. Um, but that said, you know, you know, what's actually hilarious is oftentimes when I was lifting, when I was there in, in Australia, I was listening to this soundtrack that, I, that I'm talking about when I was lifting. Actually, I think the last time I was at Lyft with, with, uh, with you, Alex, when I was lifting, I was listening to, to that you song. You know, that no shit. About. My client who doesn't listen to this, but her boyfriend does, Steph, says she listens to the Hamilton soundtrack every time she's in the gym in all her check-ins she mentions it and I was always like that's kind of quirky but it's, now it's I know. so good it really it's it's not like it's not like a musical where you're, you're just you know you're, you're you're balloting out and you're like uh you know just like sitting there and you're like this this makes no sense it's it, like it's it's real world it's real world stuff it, it actually is, is super good so I know you're a little bit skeptical but I promise give it a listen it's good did the Roots record my shot? That makes sense. Yeah, and it's got the Hamilton thing on it. You know so the that, Roots? The, of course I know the Roots. Yeah, that, so they did, um, when Hamilton started to become super popular, they did something called the Hamilton mixtape where they had a ton of just really popular individuals cover the songs from the musical slash remix them. So the Roots did that, and then I think Busta Rhymes is, is the one yeah, rapping on there. Yeah, she features on it, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it, that, that's really good too. I, I, well, listen I might to listen to that. Yeah. It's good. It's really, it's really good. It's, it's, yeah, I, I, I've set multiple PRs to that rendition of it. Well, there you go. All right. We started on a very Joe Rogan-esque theme. We were talking about DMT, stuff like that. I want to end on a Joe Rogan-esque theme before I let people hear your contact details because we have been talking about what was the shooting of a prominent political figure. JFK, who did it? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> it was the CIA, bro, 100%. So based I, on I, nothing at all, just based on Joe Rogan. <laughs> I, I just got done um, watching the Umbrella Academy. I don't know if you guys have that over in 
in Australia. It's on, it's on Netflix, but the whole second season is all about that. Um, so I'm going to say it was a, a time traveling individual uh, adjusting things so that uh, the future could be different. Doctor Who, it was the British all along. That's, that <laughs> actually made yeah. sense. It was the they, Doctor. They've been pissed off ever since the revolution and they were like, fuck it, get in the TARDIS, bro. It's time, you know, <laughs> find that popular young buck and put one through it. Perfect. That makes sense. Perfect. All right, Joe. Um, man, it's been a real pleasure. I've, I've enjoyed this episode a lot and I've learned a lot about Hamilton particularly. Um, for people who want to get in contact with you, Hamilton fan club, potential coaching clients, where can they reach out? And is it true that game day nutrition is going to have a 10% discount code for weekly weights listeners if they type in weekly weights 10? <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, that was a good way to pitch that and put me on the spot. I will talk to Ricky, who is my partner in this, and we will see what happens there. Um, as far as the best way to get a hold of me, um, either uh, Instagram via DM, it's uh, at Joe underscore TSA, uh, or by email, which is Joe at the strength um, I can also mention uh, here that I have a YouTube channel uh, that I'm trying to be better with. Uh, I have my camera behind me actually, and I'm shooting some videos for that. So there will be a lot of great content on there. Uh, Instagram as well. I'm, I'm really putting a lot of effort into putting as much short form content out there as well. Uh, and I'm also on TikTok. Uh, I don't know if you guys have happened to ban that app yet, but uh, if you haven't and want to see me rant about stupid things, uh, that's usually where I do that. 15 second Joe Stanek rants on TikTok and TikTok, TikTok really like prioritizes singing, dancing, musical stuff, right? So you're, you're channeling your skill set as best you can there, aren't you? You know, it's, it's kind of funny on TikTok specifically. It's like I'm stepping into the past. Um, like people like, so it's a lot of younger people on there. I say that like I'm so old being 25, but like it's, it's a lot of younger people on there and they just like, they don't understand so much of what we consider like just basic knowledge these days. Like I put up a video uh, talking about this, this guy, like it, like putting out these, all, all these like super like healthy alternatives as if you like can't eat, it was about a brownie. And it's like, as if you can't eat a normal brownie, like, and that's the way he's like terming it. It's just like, you know, you're, you're not going to have it. It's this guy with like, he eats like two meals a day or something like that or whatever. And just all that. So I, so I responded to it because you can do that. And I'm just like, you know, you could just move your calories around and have a regular brownie, right? And it just blew up. I think it got like 25,000 views or something like that. And people were just hating on me saying like, you're, you, that makes no sense. Sugar is so bad and blah, blah, blah. And, and it's just like, it really feels like I've stepped back in time. It's, it's so funny. Now don't get me wrong. It's a cool platform. And, and I think that it's, it's awesome uh, to, to be on there and, and create content. Um, my, uh, my friend, uh, Tim Thibodeau, I think he just passed like 70 K on there, which is kind of cool. Like having, having, he's one of the bigger people in, in like the fitness space on there uh, and having somebody that actually like knows stuff worth his salt be big on there is always good. Um, but TikTok is also cool because you like, you, you never know how videos are going to do. The algorithm is so strange. So, you know, you'll make some, like I, I didn't expect that video to get 25,000 views and yet here we are. So, well, there you go. Joe Stanek, TikTok stuff. That actually makes sense as well. When I think about it, because in the U S there's this phenomenon now of TikTok houses, right? Where they put yeah. all the TikTok stuff. And so Joe's sitting here in his spare house that he just told us he uses to film content. Mm -hmm. trying to launch his tiktok career so it's actually a tiktok house yep yep it's yeah all the fitness all the fitness tiktokers are coming here we're, we're all gonna live together my girlfriend began she's going out on the on the streets 
Honestly, yeah, it's all coming together. He also made some subtle allusions to time travel when he said it was like stepping back into the past. So, you know, I'll stop. I'll stop roasting him in case he does to me what he apparently did to JFK. <laughs> Joe, um, it's been a pleasure, man. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Will at W.BerkmanPT. I'm Alex at Alex Hayes underscore process. And we'll talk to you guys very soon.